Okay, let's just uh, let's pray, shall we? Father, we just thank you for our brother Tony. Lord, we just pray your anointing and your blessing upon him now as he just brings your word to us. Father, give us ears to hear. Uh, oh, Lord, thank you for stirring us already this morning. Just continue to do so through your word now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. And now we get to teach the word. And I love opening up God's word. So open it up with me, please. I'll waste no time to the book of First Samuel chapter 14, please. First Samuel chapter 14, it starts with this. Now it happened one day that Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who bore his armor, Come, let's go over to the Philistine garrison that is on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was sitting in the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree, which is in Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men. Achiah, the son of Echitub, Ichabad's brother, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the Lord's priest, was in Shiloh. He was wearing an ephod, but the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Between the passes, by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a sharp rock on one side and a sharp rock on the other side, and the name of one was Bozes, and the name of the other was Senech. Can you say, Bozes? Come on, you've got more than that. This is Hebrew. Bozes! Thank you. Now, can you say, Sana? Excellent. We're already there. The front one faced towards Michmash. Can you say, Michmash? Don't worry, I won't make you do this the whole time, but there's at least four that are important. And the other one, southward, opposite, Gebeah. Would you say, Gebeah? So these are the four things that you know. First of all, there are two rocks that are named. First of all, who names rocks, right? In a place that has so many of them. Bozes on one side, Senech on the other. We also know two places, Michmash on one side and Geber on the other. Then Jonathan said to the young man who bore his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few. So the armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Here, go then. Here I am with you, according to your heart. Jonathan said, Very well, then we'll cross over to these men, and we will show ourselves to them. And if they say to us, wait until we come to you, well, then we will stand in our place and not go up to them. But if they say to us thus, come up to us, well, then we will go up, for the Lord has delivered them into our hand. For this will be a sign to us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, look, the Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden. I'm sure they spoke just like that. Then the men of the garrison called to Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, come up to us. And we will show you something. Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has delivered them into the hand of Israel. So Jonathan climbed up on his hands and knees with his armor bearer after him, and they fell before Jonathan. And as he came after them, his armor bearer killed them. The first slaughter which Jonathan and his armor bearer made was about 20 men within about a half an acre of land. And there was trembling in the camp, in the field, and among the people. The garrison of the raiders also trembled, and the earth quaked. So it was, there was a very great trembling. Now the watchmen of Saul and Geber of Benjamin looked, and there was the multitude melting away. And they went here and there. Then Saul said to the people who were with him, Now, call the roll and see who has gone from us. And when they had called the roll, surprisingly, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. And Saul said to Ahia, Bring the ark of God here, for at that time the ark of God was with the children of Israel. Now it happened while Saul talked with the, to the priest that the noise that which was within the camp or in the camp of the Philistines continued to increase. And so Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. 
Then Saul and all the people who were with him assembled, and they went to the battle, and indeed every man's sword was against his neighbor. And there was a great confusion. As there was great confusion, moreover, the Hebrews who were with the Philistines before that time, who went up with them into the camp from the surrounding country, they also joined the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, all the men of Israel who were who had hidden in the mountains of Ephraim, when they had heard that the Philistines fled, they also followed hard after them in battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the land shifted to Beth Evan. Would you pray with me, please? Father God, you tell us that as the snow falls down to the ground, it does not rise up again without watering the ground it lands upon causing it to bud and flourish, bringing seed to the sower and bread to the one who eats. So is your word. Your word never returns to you empty. But you've also taught us in Hebrews that though the gospel was preached to many, it did not benefit those who did not add to it or mix to it faith. So I trust your word's going to go forth and it will not return empty. And yet, God, that is your responsibility. But there is faith, trust, pistucho, trust that you have given each one of us to each man is given a measure of faith. And then you tell us that faith comes by hearing and that your word. So here we are with a measure of faith and then more being added to it as your word goes forth. And you challenge us to take that faith, that simple trust, and to place it upon you as we hear your word now. So I pray that you would profoundly minister, that everything that happened here be perfect, every moment redeemed, every second properly spent. So Lord, give us ears to hear, give us eyes to see, give us hearts to receive, make them fertile soil for the planting of your word. And now, Lord, captivate us in your word, we pray. Draw us in and may we have so much fun as we draw in now. Speak to us profoundly, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I would say today, as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible have the final say. I don't normally start with a story, but I have to in this particular case. It's sort of in context. <clears throat> Every Sunday morning, we charge, we actually start church in about 40 minutes uh, in Camden Town. Uh, and people still show up later. It really doesn't matter what time you start. But at 1230, so let's do this quickly. Lord, we just lift up the service that will take place in 40 minutes in Camden. Lord, save, transform, reach people. God, lift up Pastor Daniel, lift up Pastor Jaden, and reach our communities, God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, friends. Well, every Sunday morning... I have the privilege of going early, and I usually try to find some form of, you know, pretentious coffee house where I can sit, open up my Bible, and just get my head straight and pray for opportunities, whether that be with somebody sitting next to me or the people who work there. Uh, and traditionally, the moment that I feel like I have favor in a place, I sort of camp there for the next few weeks and then just pray for those opportunities. But I, to do that, I get off a stop early. You're probably where most people in London don't like to drive. It's senseless because you have to pay for it anyways, and it's it's a crazy thing. So you take the train, and you get the train a stop early, and that means you walk roughly a mile between your stop and where you, you know, and the next stop, which is where, much closer to the church. And But doing that, I walk past a place called the Roundhouse. Some of you might be familiar, MTV and a lot of those guys do concerts at the Roundhouse. And the Roundhouse is named that aptly because it's round on one side, and as it's round, there are these little enclaves, sort of like roughly half the size of this, and roughly about as deep as it is would be here. 
And of course, it's very normal on any Sunday morning to find the rough sleepers in those particular areas. It's just a normal thing. And there are a very deep amount of rough sleepers in London. I know you're all aware of that. On this particular Sunday morning, I'm walking, and it's unusually cold. It was that first big frost that we sort of all hit. And then I'm walking by. There's a young lady walking in my direction. So we're going to intersect roughly at the place of one of these enclaves. Where the enclave is, there's a man that's been tucked away, and he's only wearing, he only has a white sheet. And uh, that was a little unusual. And we just, we both kind of cross and walk, and we both stop. You ever sort of see something under the corner of your eye, and then you stop, because you realize, I better take a second look at that. And as we look back, we both recognize that his eyes are open and he's not breathing. Within a second, it just seems like we are on top of this guy trying to pump a a pulse back into this man. And what seems very clear, just even from feeling his skin, is he's been dead for about four or five hours. And I just wondered, of course, how many people had walked by this man as he was dying. He had basically drunk himself numb, tucked himself into the darkness of the night, and that was the last breath he would take. And I started to think about this as, as, of course, I'm on my way to church, but ultimately contemplating this situation, which is very profound, and it's going to affect me, of course, not just for the day, but even today as I'm sharing it. And as I'm, as I'm walking by this, I realized that this man wasn't one of the familiar guys in Camden. I know pretty much all of the familiar homeless guys there. We kind of have a relationship. And um, I'm known as the God guy. That's what they call me, the God guy. And, uh, and you know, I sit and I pray with them and I talk to them about Jesus. And they're like, I'm not ready yet. I'm like, you, you're going to need to be ready because I don't know how much time you have. But this particular character wasn't somebody very well known. As a matter of fact, no one really knew who he was. But I just wondered what it was like. He was tucked into a place. And if you're used to walking beside people who are rough sleepers, you surmise the potential threat of that individual when you walk by them. My family has a signal that when I'm walking with my family, if somebody seems a little unhinged, I will make sure I put myself in between that individual and my family as we walk by so that you have to get through me to get to my family. That's the point. And so the reason I say that is this guy has kind of got tucked out. He's been tucked aside. He's been tucked aside to the point where now he was no threat. And of course, at this point he's no threat at all to anyone and the reason I say that is as I'm praying through this situation the Lord shows me that's much the church in the western world and that's America that is England that is to be honest it's it's Europe and I started to remember what it was like to think that this island that if this island were a state in the United States it would be there would be seven states larger than the UK the entire UK to give you an idea. It's not a very big place in the scope of all geography. But in essence, it had its fingers on and spun the space of time for the entire world not that long ago. And to think of where it's gone from that point to here. And I'm praying, I'm going, God, this is affecting me. And I, how do we get back from this space? First of all, how did we get here? And then how do we get from this space to a place again where, thank you, because this country sent missionaries all over the world, including to places that I've gone to be able to back up and disciple individuals that are great-grandchildren of people who got saved because of English missionaries. That are now looking at raising up missionaries to send them to England to thank you for it. And the Lord brings me to this text. So my intent over this next small batch of time is to kind of, first of all, in two steps, first step is how did we get here? 
And the second step, how do we fix it? Context to where we're at on the text. It's roughly about 1050 BC. Israel's been in the promised land for roughly about 400 years. Israel at one time had an army of 330,000 people. And it has now been reduced to a small band of roughly 600 bodyguards. That gives you kind of an idea. Meanwhile, the perennial enemy of Israel with the Philistines have gained traction. 30,000 chariots, 6,000 cavalry, and foot soldiers beyond count. The enemy seems that in all points at this particular moment in time, they would just be, in essence, in all points of consideration, impervious, undefeatable, and God's people seem like they're there at the mercy of them. And yet, Israel was once the formidable army. They shouted down walls. You do remember that, right? They fell giants. They saw unconquerable empires that called themselves eternal empires decimated by following their God into battle. Even the seas couldn't hold them. Enemies trembled at their name. They were the renowned unstoppable force. Now, reduced to a place of subservience and consequence, irrelevance, much like that man tucked into the corner there of a, of a nook, a roundhouse. Worse yet, according to 1 Samuel 13, two chapters of chapter prior, they're even weaponless. It tells us in 1 Samuel 13, 19, that there were only two swords found in the entire nation of Israel, the one held by the king, Saul, and the one held by his son, who, by the way, at this point has been made clear, will never be king. God has told Saul he has lost his legacy in the previous two chapters. They have to go to the Philistines to sharpen their plow blades. The Philistines are holding their hand on the pulse of their throats. And they're losing ground. The Philistines are now at Michmash. We've read that. Michmash, for what it's worth, just two chapters prior, was the place where Saul and his army were. The place that the king stood is now being held as a camp for the enemy. Does it seem like Christianity to you? Now, I'm not saying all of it. I'm saying a lot of it. I remember it was about five years ago that I was irate. You know, sort of, I, I wasn't raised a Christian. I, and I remember going to Calvary. <clears throat> it was the first church where, to be honest, I fell in, I, I responded to the gospel, but lived much like I did before until someone was kind enough to say, you should read that book. And the moment I read that book, this book, this beautiful Bible, I fell in love with the God of it. And I remember going to a Calvary and realizing that people taught the Word, and I'd never seen a Bible open. I'd gone to church for three and a half years, led worship before I was saved, highly do not recommend them, and yet had never seen a Bible open. And when I saw that open, I realized this is where I belong. It was like coming home. And I remember, because I was raised sort of in a spiritually in a Calvary, there weren't big buildings. There weren't these giant monoliths and so forth. And so I kind of, you know, had that kind of, oh, well, we should just, we should be in a school, we should be in a warehouse, whatever, until God brought a batch of architecture uh, students into my fellowship back in California. And I realized that if you were to say, if someone, if you were an architect and someone said, I want you to build a house for the most magnificent, 
almighty, glorious being in the universe, what kind of house would you build? And I started to realize that what people were really attempting to do was they were attempting so that when you walked in, you realized, and they were tucked right in the neighborhoods, right? So you kind of went house, house, house. Whoever lives there must be magnificent. Look at how big and magnificent and awe-striking and the colors that shoot through those windows and the way that the thing... And, and, and again, the only reason I say that is at least I get the idea behind it. And once I had sort of segued into that, uh, that mindset, I remember then seeing how many churches had turned into clubs and pubs, into flats, into theaters, and into social groups. Those are the four things. And I remember crying out to God, going, God, this is really bothering me. And I'm saying, Tony, you do realize they have been those things even when congregations occupied them for quite a while. They've been theaters. They've been places for people to get drunk. They've been places for people to catch a nap. They've just not been places that have welcomed me. He says, this isn't very big of a movement for me. It just is for you. And the reason I say that is, is that that's where Israel is back before this text. Now, how do we get there? All the way back in the book of Deuteronomy, God made very clear that we were not to imitate the world. As a matter of fact, he says this in Deuteronomy 12, 8, you shall not do as we are doing today, Moses speaking, every man doing what is right in his own eyes. As a matter of fact, back in Leviticus, he says, you need to keep my judgments, my laws, my commandments, all of these things, Otherwise, you'll imitate the abominations of the world around you. You are to do none of those things, lest thus the land become defiled. As a matter of fact, he says this in Deuteronomy 18.9, you shall not learn to do any of the abominations of the nation. The call is to be separate. And this is the problem that we start with. We give our life to Jesus Christ, and according to Ephesians 1.13, the moment you accept the gift of Jesus Christ, he places within you his Holy Spirit, signifying and sealing you, separating you from the rest of the world, and then begins his work from the inside out, changing your value system, turning what was evil into something unfun. Some of you are very familiar with that. I remember the first time I went out to do that, which I would have normally done before, and it just was not fun anymore. It was just lame. Really, to be honest, he just pulled the blinders off. And, and I remember sitting around a group of people going, you guys are all losers. And, and I am too. But I remember looking at it going, I can't believe I ever thought this was cool. What was I thinking? The truth was, I wasn't thinking. If I was thinking at all, I would never have done these things. It's like God turned my head on for the first time. The problem is, now you are the only living thing in the morgue. And the world starts to look at you very differently than it did before. And if you were cool, you're not so cool anymore. If you were strong, they'll say, oh, Christianity's for the weak. If you were social, they'll be like, oh, that's for losers. You notice how they try to hit in the area you feel good about yourself. You'll die single. And you go, well, but I want to be liked. And then you read the texts, but there's a part of it's like your head reads them, but your heart doesn't hear them, where he says, blessed are you when you're persecuted for righteousness sake. And you're like, I don't feel very blessed. Jesus is like, do you even know the company you're in? The prophets. And Jesus goes, even me. He goes, if you're calling yourself a Christian, that means you're like me, the Christ. And if they hate me and they love you, something's not right here. 
And you go, but I want to be wanted. And he goes, that's why I gave you church. That's why I gave you fellowships. You could have a place where you're wanted. And you have a family when your family deserts you. And you have a place where people could look and go, I'm just so glad you're here. But then you look at the world and you're like, I don't know though. They've got the money and they've got the things. And you should see those videos. I mean, some guy opens up a can of beer and women jump out of the television tube. How does that work? I mean, it's amazing what the, what the world promotes. And we're like, I want some of that. Can I get both? It's like being healed of cancer and then going, but can I have a little bit of cancer and a little bit of health at the same time? What part of us would think that's normal? And Israel, of course, starts to fall into that. That uniqueness, separation, holiness under the Lord thing, that is not optional. That's essential. Jesus didn't marry us so we could play the field. So, we move from that to Joshua. And by the time we get to Joshua 18, the land for a a fair part is conquered. And yet, seven of the tribes don't even show up to get the land. There is, at this point now, an ambivalence to God's gifts. Because you're too busy window shopping the world. And you're like, well, what does the world have to offer? And God's like, I, and it's like, here's the funny, the, the sad part. Is that God offers peace. And this stuff says, I could give you peace, but you have peace and abundance here that surpasses circumstance. And they're promising something that's a completely different kind of peace. Because Jesus even says, a peace I give you, not that the world gives. It's a very different peace. It's a peace, by the way, that isn't reliant on anything other than God's presence. The word erenas, in this case, eros, comes from a word that means to join. The reason we have peace is because we have peace with Christ. Because of that, nothing else really should take us down like it could have before. Power and love, those things that the world promises, that at best could give you for a moment, Jesus says, I'll give you life abundant, and it never ends. But we still look at that, and then God says, well, here I have the offer. And all of a sudden, God's things just don't look that good anymore. It's like we've been marketed candy and we're wondering why we feel so malnourished. So we go from this indifference to God's great things for these things the world sells as shiny but inconsequential to the time of judges. Please hear me on this because there is a pattern that is in Judges 1. It starts with Manasseh. Manasseh did not completely drive out the Canaanites because the Canaanites were determined. God says, you drive them out completely, and they're like, eh, I'll drive out the easy things. But it goes from Anasha to Ephraim, and, Ze- and um, for what it's worth, and in Zebulun. And with Ephraim and Zebulun, it tells us that they did not drive out the Canaanites at all. But they let the Canaanites dwell among them. That moves to Asher, and it tells us that Asher not only did not drive them out at all, but it tells us that Asher then dwelt among them. Do you hear the difference? It started with, oh, it's a little bit of work now. I don't know about this work thing. And, you know, this is a battle to fight. I don't know about that. They're pretty determined. You know, and it's like, I don't want to drive that part of the world out of me. And so what happens is, is now all of a sudden you start with this idea, okay, I'll just kind of let it sit there. It's just going to be part of life. It's going to be a little thorn in the flesh. And all of a sudden you're the stranger in your house. And it gets to the point of Dan, and it tells us that the Ammonites, by the way, would not allow Dan down from the hills. So they got to the point where they were shoved in a corner, like the man at the roundhouse. It started with this. I looked at the world and said, can I get some of that and some salvation? And you know, this happens in youth group. What can happen is, it's like, we're going to go have fun, then we're going to go read the Word. You realize what we just said, right? It's like, so Jesus is for saving, but the world's for fun. 
And when we grow up, we don't stop thinking that way. We just learn how to do that in a way that's different. But I don't know about you, but for me, I've never had so much fun. I've never had such peace and joy and life other than walking with Jesus Christ. And there's nothing the world could sell me that in any possible way could compare. And this becomes the problem here. Because they still think, maybe if I could get the cool things from the world... Don't worry, eternity will be handled by God. So we stopped pushing out the envelope. We stopped being different. We let the world in and we became an outsider in our own front yards. And so we say, well, make us a king. So we could be like all the other nations. That's what they actually say. First Samuel 8.20 We want them to actually go before us. We want them to fight our battles. We want them to judge us. We want him to tell us what's right and wrong. We want him to be our representative. And what happens now is that this people of God become a small group of experts that represent whatever, and everybody else becomes a bystander. They become, uh, they become a, a consumer instead of part of the army. Do you see the difference? Where in the beginning, we were all there taking the land. With the promise that God gave Joshua, that if you, wherever you walk, I'm going to give you, that wherever you set the sole of your foot, I'm going to give you. Now, if I hear that, I'm kind of one of those people. I would head to the coast like this, and I would run. Because what's clear and evident is if he's going to give me land, the only part that's necessary for me is to set my foot down. And if I do that regularly, I call that walking. Well, well, then what God's telling us is, is if you walk, I'll give it to you. But you're going to have to walk. It's a trajectory. It's not a stance. It's a trajectory. And I'm going, all right, Lord, I want to walk. I want to follow you. And as I follow you, you give whatever you want to give. But I'm going to follow you. Where? I don't care. I'm following you. I don't have to know where I'm going. You have to know where I'm going. You just have to go and I just have to memorize the back of your head. And as long as I know the back of your head, I know I'm going to be okay. Oh no, no. I'm, really, I'm, I'm tired of being thought of as odd and weird. And I'm tired of, you know, I mean, I, I think I could pull off cool if I stopped doing this Christian thing so overtly. And people are like, stop going overboard. Has anyone ever told you that? And they genuinely love you when they're telling you that? I'm like, let me tell you what. Prove something else that can't be overdosed. I'm going to try to overdose on Jesus Christ, and you tell me what happens. You know how people actually criticize and yell at us? We get called, we used to get calls from parents all the time. They're like, my kid used to smoke pot with me and run from the law with me and all this. Now he's like become this empty headed, brainwashed, you know, what did you do to my kid? I'm like, did you just hear what you said? You know, if I recorded you, you could be arrested for this conversation. So this is where we wind up in this point. You can't tell by the time this is done who's on God's side and who isn't. There was a time when it was very clear and evident from the clothes you wore. And I didn't mean that in the sense, look, at you, you can't wear a leather jacket or you can't wear jeans. What I'm saying is, is that, that the way that the people were, they made sure that there were tassels and there were zizi. There were things that they showed. They, were, they had an allegiance to God. But sadder still, and this is the part that amazes me, is that God's people were claiming this as some kind of victory. They're like, check it out. The world doesn't hate us anymore. Look what we've done. Hey, you can get the world anywhere, but where in the world can you get heaven? Shouldn't this be the place you walk in and go, this is kind of weird. This is like not like what I'm used to. People aren't like ripping each other off or sizing each other up for stuff. They're actually kind of happy to be a family and they're unique and they're kind of the way that they're made up and different ages and different races and nationalities, but none of that stuff seems to be the coagulating element. It just seems like really in the end of it all, they're just really happy to be saved. 
And then you know what happens when that kind of thing starts happening? You get excited about taking people into that. And they're like, because let's face it, people are actually fascinated by weird. And we're afraid to be the thing that would fascinate them. Not I'm telling you to cover your head in aluminum foil and run around and bark at the moon. That's a weird, I don't know what people can do. I'm saying being a Christian is the weirdest thing. We have a joke in Camden, and the joke is, you want to be weird there, be normal. We've been told by the people that are there that dress in all black with the whole bleach their face and the whole bit and have 666 literally tattooed on their head. They're like, you're the scariest person I've ever seen. I'm like, wow, I think that's kind of a compliment. Now, listen to the degradation so we can get to to the solution. We just started, we took our eyes off of Jesus. That's all I have to say, isn't it? And you started looking for anything that compared. Isaiah says he had no stately form or majesty that would be drawn to him. So Jesus isn't going to be the most attractive surfer Jesus that we see in paintings. And you look, and the enemy knows if he could make it shiny enough and put a few lights behind it, it just may catch your eye. And we're like spiritual ADHD people. We're like, Jesus, what, what? Oh, squirrel! And we're just looking for anything else. And Jesus is like, if you keep your eyes on me, you will never go down. And I'll keep you in perfect peace. The irony is you leave that to go find peace that you had before you left. Does that make any sense? So, the nation's leader, Saul, passively slouching at Gebeah. Now, I need to do this just to try to make it a little clearer for a moment. Ready? I'm going to those two places. Remember that Gebeah and Michmash? Well, let's put those here since we have two sides, if you will. Let's make you guys geber. So, if I ask you, where are you, you would say? Thank you. Let's try that again. If I ask you where you are, you would say? Thank you. Now, you guys are michmash. You get the michmash in it. So, where are you? Michmash. Good. So, geber, michmash. You with me so far? Now, what we do read is that Saul is at geber. So Saul is here at Geber with his 600 men. The entirety of the army now is protecting a king. That's it. Interesting, isn't it? The army that was, by the way, an amazing offense, now was all about defense. My first football match, real football, that's European, by the way, because Americans, we should call it soccer. They get socked. Anyways, I remember my first one was England versus the USA in the World Cup eight years ago. It was my first match I ever watched. Watched it with a bunch of my English buddies. I went, for what it's worth, I rooted for England. And I remember watching it, and if, I, if any of you remember it, I'd be quite impressed. The score at the end, 0-0. Zero, zero. Now, for a guy that's used to, like, and I coached basketball, for instance, if a point doesn't happen within 13 seconds, something's wrong with the team. And so I'm kind of looking, and I'm, I'm, I'm kind of looking around to see if this is normal. The most amazing part to me was that it was sort of like, you know, it would hit 90 minutes, and then they just kept playing. I don't know why that was. And then it was, and then I just kind of looked around and I'm like, yeah, I guess that's normal. And then it was like a couple of minutes and it was like two minutes and 35 seconds or something. And then they all, it was like, they blew a whistle and I was like, okay. And they all just like left. And that was, there was no big hype. There was no arc. There was no any, it was just like, they all ran around and they, and I was like, so is this normal? Is this like, was this a good match? Because I felt like I was in a Jane Austen film where you're like, something happened! And, and I'm watching this, and the only reason I say that is, is that it got to the point where like, it's a game of almosts. 
But we had great defense. What a great defense we had. And I'm like, but if you have a fantastic defense with no offense, the best you can do is tie. Where's our offense? The offense is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, for what it's worth, this is where we're at. And again, I have to get into this because I only have a few minutes here. But look at Geber, Saul is here. With his 600 men, all just trying to defend what they have left. Right? Over here, Michmash. Guess who's in Michmash? The Philistines. 30,000 chariots, 6,000 cavalry, foot soldiers beyond count. You're a pretty busy place right now. Y'all with me on this? Now, look at our text. And by the way, one other thing on this. We have two other groups of people that are Israel. Half of them, or a good portion of them, have actually joined the Philistines. They've said, forget it. I'm tired of doing this thing. I might as well just get part of that. You know how that works in the church, right? People that were like on fire for Jesus, now they're they're out doing all kinds of things. And you're like, how did you join them? But then there's another group of people who have hidden in rocks and caves in the hills of Ephraim. This is where we're at at the moment. We have a 600-person army over here. We can't count those guys. And with that, we have a king who doesn't want to do anything. He is just overwhelmed. We've got guys that we once fought with that are now hiding in caves. And we have other people who've joined the enemy altogether. Does that make sense? But there's one guy, and his name means grace. Yohanan. Chapter 14, verse 1. It happened one day that Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who bore his armor, let's go. There was one man who still had that fight in him. It doesn't say we had a lot. Matter of fact, we didn't even get the armor bearers. Like, yeah, I just want to fight. There was one guy. And it's the only guy I know cannot be king. Well, and his brothers. Because God told Saul, your legacy's done. You with me on this? Back for what it's worth in the book of Joshua, there is this hero of mine, Caleb. He's 85 years old in chapter 14, and he turns to Joshua. He says, remember 40 years ago when we went through this land and we saw this area? It was really, really great, and I want it. Can I have it? Can I go fight for it? He's 85. He doesn't say, can I go and delegate? Ah, 40 years ago there was, there was this. I want it. Joshua goes, go. He grabs a bunch of guys and he goes there and he takes it. When I first gave my life to Jesus Christ, I remember looking for older people. Genuinely, true story. I was 19 years old. And I had said, what would it be like? I mean, I, I, and I'm honest truth. I never spoke. I never smiled. I didn't engage people before I knew Jesus. I was, I had been in a world of, of anyways, I'd gotten to a place where I just was like, I, I hated people in mass. So, my life was changed. I mean, the moment I accepted Jesus Christ, the radical changes were, were almost undocumentable, how, cha- how, how brilliant and drastic they were. And the reason I say that is, I'm like, I'm loving God and excited about God and all this. And I started looking. I'm like, wow, could you imagine what it would be like to be a Christian for like five years or 10 years or 20? Whoa, 20 years. What would a guy that's known Jesus for 20 years be like? I'm thinking me... On like six Red Bulls. So excited about God. Now look at, I know that that's not everyone. Or for that matter, thankfully for the world, that's not most people. But I expected someone to be able to breathe Jesus more than I did. You know what I found? Sarcasm, cynicism, skepticism, politics. I could not find one person 
that I'd look at and go, wow, that's, this is A, that's B, and thought, that's a good B. This November, my wife and I will be married four, I'm sorry, 30 years. And I have people who still, to this day, will go, and who does this? You know, we're at, having dinner, and they'll be like, you must be newlyweds. Don't worry, honey, it won't last long. My wife would be like, excuse me, what's long for you? It's 30 years for us. I don't know what you did to your thing. And the only reason I say that is, is people just assume it's just going to get worse. I am determined to be that guy that I looked for when I was first saved. And I want you to be too. And that's Jonathan here. Jonathan's dad, I remind you, is mumping it where? In Geber, right. He's mumping it in Geber with 600 men. Jonathan Lees is like, you know what? I am so fed up with the nonsense and with the, like, just mash. Like, Christianity is just like mash, you know? It's like, add something to it to make it some flavor. It's just substance with nothing. And, and it's like, I'm tired of it. So it says that Saul was sitting on the outskirts of Geber, under a pomegranate tree in a place called, which is called Migron. Migron, by the way, means precipice, a place where a decision should be made. 600 men are with him, and we read in verse 3 about the, if you will, the brother of a guy whose name means the glory has departed, who's a priest, he's clothed in, he's dressed up for his job, but he's unaware of the fact that the prince has left. I kind of get the idea the priest isn't really doing his job very well. You'd think if he was seeking the Lord, he might at least know that the prince is gone. Uh, what do I know? And with that in mind, it tells us that this is what Jonathan does. Jonathan takes his armor bearer. And as he takes his armor bearer, let me see if I can use this one now. Let's see. Oh, good. So it's working for the moment. And if not, I'll shout. Um, he goes, notice what it says in verse 5. He says that he places himself between two rocks. Did you notice that? And it tells us that, in, in, and again, these two not, rocks have names. Bodzes and Seneh. Right, you with me so far? Now, and then he tells us which one faces which direction. First of all, who names rocks? Second, who puts themselves in a place between rocks? So, you know, you've talked about someone being between a rock and a hard place. This guy is definitely between a rock and a hard place. Are you with me? He's there with his armor bearer. He's in a place where he is now in a valley, which is the worst place to fight, because that means gravity is not on your side. You could roll, you could roll boulders down on these guys. What do you have going for you? Does that make sense? Now, with that, what we read is we have these two, Bozes and Senech. And what we read, by the way, Bozes, we read faces Mikmash. And what's in Mikmash? The Philistines. Excellent. The Philistines are there. You with me? Now, on the other side of that, Senech faces Gebeah. What's there? Saul. His frumpy Saul and his 600 men. You with me? Now, what do these names mean? Because that's part of it. Well, what does mean? Surpassingly, gloriously white. That's what it means. So that means that you could name a rock that. You know, you're looking, you're going, wow, that is a really white rock. Let's name it gloriously white rock. So there is this gloriously white rock on this side. Over here, we have a rock that's called cursed and thorny. That's what Seneth means. Now, don't miss the brilliance of this moment. They're in a valley, which traditionally tends to be a place of decision. You know that, for instance, from places like Shechem, between on Gerizim and Mount Ebal. Now, with that, they look, and over here there is glory. But that glory faces a fight. But it's a fight to take back what we had. But over here is a place that's thorny and cursed. 
And it is the past. It is nothing happening here. It is the place of stagnancy. It is the place where we just coil up and die. Does that make sense? And he is here and he says, we've got an echo of choice. Do I want to go back to the past and just live what this was in this place of this thorny, cursed place? Or do I want to take on the glory of the future battles that God wants to lead me forward? And I pray that you are like me in this and saying, I want that. But they're like, but there's a battle to be fought. There's a battle on both sides. The only problem is going this way, you've already lost. Does that make sense? I mean, think about this. David was always safer on the battlefield with the Lord than he ever was in the palace by himself. Do you remember the John Mark story where he joins his, his uncle, his cousin really, Barnabas, and they head up through Cyprus from the east side to the west side, and then at the end of that, they decide to go up into the south coast of Turkey, but, but John Mark instead goes back to Jerusalem. Now, the one thing I do know in Jerusalem is his mom, because his mom has a house that the disciples meet in and pray. And I realized that at that port, two boats took off. One to this amazing, glorious adventure where God is going to transform Turkey and another back to the place that was safe back home. Well, that's where we're at here in this place. So here we are today. And by the way, I want to warn you because I'm almost done. That's where you're at at this moment with me. You're going to walk out that door and you're just going to have to choose to go one way or the other. But I want to see England transformed. Oh, man, and I want to see you do it. I want to see you guys raise up and say, you know what? It's God that does all the saving. I just want to be the ambulance. And I'm more than happy to be that vehicle. So this is what he says. Are you all with me on this? And he's there. And first of all, here to put yourself in a place where God has to do the miracle. Let's be honest. Because at this point, if God doesn't do it, we're in trouble. And he says, here's the deal. Listen to this simple, organic, practical evangelism. He says, we're going to show ourselves to the Philistines. Now, that already tells you what direction we're going, doesn't it? I'm just going to show you for who I really am. Now, as a Jew, it's pretty obvious from the clothes that they wore, you could see them, you could spot them a mile away. You knew that they were not who you were. We're just going to say, look at this is who I am. No, I'm not hiding it anymore. I'm coming out. Everyone else is coming out with their things. We should be clear to come out with ours. I belong to Jesus Christ. And there's going to be one of two responses. One is they're going to come at us. In which case, we're not going to give up any ground. We're going to stand our ground. But if they invite us in, there is victory to be had. And there is the thing. He goes, this is simple, practical evangelism. Try this for, for on, on this week. And it's my challenge to you. And Barry can tell you this is what we do because we've been doing it basically all weekend. It's like, look at this is why I'm a Christian. I tend not to tell people often that I'm a pastor because I don't want them to think it's my job. And I'm like, look at I'm just a Christian. This is what I do all the time in Camden. I'm like, hi, my name is Tony. What's your name? 99% of the time they tell me, even if they're a little nervous by that. And I'm like, hey, look at I'm a Christian. And I want you to know I'm praying for people. And if you're willing to give me anything, I'll pray for you for that thing. If you're not, I'm just going to pray for you by your name. I've never had anyone go, go away from me, I hate you, don't you ever even dare do that. And so, all I'll do is, as soon as I walk away, on my phone, I'll type in there. So then I'm like, three days later, it's always three days for me, Ahmed, how's your son? So you still have the flu. In a place where you have 14.9 million people on a conveyor belt in front of you, it's a radical thing that anyone remembers your name. And I'm like, look at, I've been praying for you, and I've been praying to Jesus for you. But I'm a Muslim. Wow. Does that mean I can't pray for you? 
Didn't Jesus, according to my Bible, Jesus died for all human beings, that includes you, because he wants to save every human being, that includes you. And if you're willing to accept his gift, he's still willing to save you. Can I? Can we just sit and talk over tea sometime? We have a whole group of people that are called the, well, anyways, I, I probably shouldn't say, but let me just say this, we have a whole group of people that are even sons of priests from Tehran that have given their life to Jesus Christ. And that's part of the beauty of it. And this is all we did. We just revealed ourselves. Now, what happens when they come at you? You just hold your ground. They're like, do you really believe? And you say, yes. Yeah, actually, I do. Do you know how many times people really want to hear that? I remember Billy Graham being interviewed by one of those really cantankerous BBC guys. And it's not just the BBC, but they tend to grow them too. And they're like, do you really believe? And I remember Billy Graham, his answer was always so good. He was like, it really doesn't matter what I believe, but the Bible says... That was such a great answer, right? Because the point is, it's really not, you're not going to have to deal with me in the end. But if you have a problem with this book, you're going to have to deal with the author. And there's what the Bible says. So, do you really believe that? Let me tell you what the Bible says. This is what the Bible says. And what if you can't answer? Do you know how refreshing it is to say, I don't know? Because if you're an atheist and you're running your own universe, you've got to know everything. Even if you make up a crazy answer, you're like, you really believe that nonsense? You know, you're like, you know what? I don't know, but I'm not running the universe, but I will go check. And maybe he'll tell me. There are times where the Lord will actually not give me an answer to that, but he'll give me an answer to something else. You know, I know the reason you're saying that is because your son died three years ago. Now, that's a risky thing to say, isn't it? Because what if he didn't? The guy's like, what? I've never been married in my life. But we've never had that situation yet. And he's like, what? How dare you? Where did that come from? Who told you that? I'm like, remember that person I said I was going to inquire? Really, that's the bigger issue, isn't it? You really could care less who Cain's wife is. First of all, she's dead. Second of all, she's married. Why would you care? You know? I mean, it's amazing. And the whole point of it is this. So Jonathan says, look it, we're just going to show ourselves, and they're going to do one of two things. They're going to come at us, or they're going to invite us in. But if they invite us in, there's victory. So someone says, well, why don't you? Okay, come on in. I'm like, awesome, I know where this is going. You're with me on that. So what happens as a result of that? It tells us that their first battle they win, it's 20 people. And you know what? Is there a part of you that thinks, oh, it's 20 people. It's just 20. What I've known about Calvary's here, and to be honest, Bible teaching, God-loving churches, 20 people being changed in a day would be one of the biggest news the church has experienced in quite a while. Let's just be honest. When the church has done nothing, and I'm not talking about us here, but when the army has done nothing, 20 people is a huge deal. But it is just popping the top off of the bottle. Because that just says that's the beginning. And then the whole thing goes mental. What we read is the enemy starts charging each other. They just start stabbing each other. It's like, wow, I better not even get involved in that. And you watch this. The enemy comes at themselves and they argue among themselves. I'm like, I think it's better if I just let you guys handle that yourselves. I'm going to get back to the right thing. That was the first thing that happens. Second, Saul becomes aware that there's tumult over here. And he's like, wow, that's really weird. Something's happening and I'm not a part of it. Well, let's call roll. I wonder how long it took to call roll for 600 or, if you will, 598 guys. And they're like, your son's not here. And you see Saul going, oh. two chapters before this, he did this before again. And see him going, oh, that grace, that grace is added again. That's what his name means. 
So they're like, well, I guess we better get mad. Oh, listen, one guy with one guy starting this takes the complacent and gets them back in action. Did you notice that? And you're like, well, what if we just spend all our time arguing? How about you get out there and see what happens? Because it's much easier to follow someone in business than it is to someone to try to tell you their business. Now, with that, ultimately, then the next thing we read is that those who had joined the Philistines left the Philistines to fight against the Philistines. And then those that were hidden in caves came out of the caves. Listen, one guy, one guy with an armor bear says, hey, are you with me? I'm going out. Well, this is impossible. Well, it would be if God weren't involved. But who, who needs odds? We're dealing with the living Almighty here. I'm going to go in. Have you forgotten that you are a prince of the Almighty King? So here we are. I'm going to do it. Are you with me? All right, let's go. Well, then what happens is the complacent jump in. Those that had joined the enemy bail out. Those that were hiding come out. And all of a sudden, that army that was 600 men starts becoming an army again. What's interesting is what Jonathan didn't do was he didn't run into the caves and start yelling at people in caves. He didn't just run to his dad and say, what's wrong with you guys? Maybe he did. We don't have it recorded. But what's clear is nothing seemed to come of that. But what Jonathan did do is he went into the battle where it belonged. And this is what I'm going to pray for us. Look at It is my heart's desire for every one of us to hunger for this. And that's really where it needs to start. But I can tell you this. I could fill this day with stories of the crazy, magnificent things that Jesus has done. My prayer last night with Jade, how cool it was to be able to do it. And I pray she's going to show up one of these weeks. Her nan lives around the corner, wherever that is. And it's just because you just pray for those opportunities. But let's face it, when it's important to you, you become an opportunist. That's just kind of how that works. But is there any fight left in you? Any part of you that still hungers for that magnificence that God promised you? Because otherwise we read Scripture and there's got to be some weird disconnect because he talks about abundant life and we think it's for other people but not us. We talk about this victory and we think it must be for other people but not for us. I just want to pray for us, first of all, that we get our eyes out of the windows of the world get them back on the one who is the undefeated heavyweight champion of the universe. And we do more than agree with him. We follow him. And I'm a bear, that's the guy for what it's worth, that's willing to carry your shield. When we go out and share Jesus with people, we take other people who are scared to death. Let's face it, most people don't go out into the streets and share because they've never seen anyone go out in the streets and share. So we just say, hey, look at, I need an armor bear. And all I'm asking you to do is, while we go out, pray for me while I share. Would you do that? And you know that's on-the-job training, but sort of a sly thing. But it is true. And so what happened? You're out there, and you just and look at we just say, Lord, we're available. Now there are other people who have different methods. And look at my method's just the thing that Lord's shown me. You do you do what God tells you. But I'm like, Lord, I'm just I'm available. Run me into people. And He always does. You run, you get run, you run into someone and you're like, all right, Lord, give me wisdom on what to say and how to say it. And then I look over and the guy's like, he's carrying my armor. But you know what happens after a half hour of a guy that's praying for you. Sooner or later, you step back and he's jumping into the battle. And by the way, the battle is not over that person accepting Jesus. To be honest, that's their battle. 
Your battle's just over you sharing. That's where the victory is. And I just want to pray for you. Look at, my God loved you so much that he handed over the most precious thing to him, his only begotten son, the only one of his own gene pool, monogenes. And he let him come down here and get the flu and be tired and have a tummy ache be irritable, but never sin. And in his absolute obedience, took upon you and me, took from you and me the weight of all of our sins and placed them upon his shoulders. And it crushed him. Has anyone ever given you that cheeky, is, if, could God create a rock so big you couldn't lift it? They think like this is the ultimate death blow to their logic. I'm like, yeah, actually, God did create a rock so big that he couldn't lift it. And then he lifted it. See, he's big enough to do both. He created us. And in our own sinfulness, our own weight crushed Jesus in the garden. But my God took that so that his son could pay for all of our debt. And just like Scripture promised on the third day, rose again and offers us a brand new life. See, the world sees the cross part. That's the part that says, oh, I have to give up stuff. Cross is the place of sacrifice. What they don't see is the resurrection because that's the place where new life is so you see that it's a, a great exchange. Every wedding is that. You gladly give up your singleness because you're convinced that what you gain in marriage is better than what you had in your singleness. It's two deaths and one resurrection. And the same with Jesus. The only thing is normally we have some idea in our head of what a great marriage should be and we're like, oh, that's what I want. But what do people have in their head when we talk about walking with Jesus? So as we go to prayer, if you've never accepted this gift of Jesus Christ, I want to give you that opportunity today. It's simple. And that is to accept the gift that Jesus paid on the cross for you for all your guilt and shame and to hand your life to him as the Lord and Savior of your life so that, in other words, you allow him to be the architect of your reinvention. You're like, every bit of me now, Lord, you're welcome to reinvent. But if you have given your life to Jesus and accepted him, I remind you, you would hear Jesus say, follow me, not just agree with me. I guarantee you, you're going to follow him to many places that are you'll, you'll find yourself in between a rock and a hard place. But every one of those is going to be a precipice of choice where glory awaits you if you're willing to follow him into the battle. And my prayer is that this country be again the voice of Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Lord, I want to thank you for this beautiful text. I want to thank you for what you've done in this time. Lord, I want to thank you for your immeasurable, invincible, glorious love for us. And here in this room, Lord, you tell us that I, I don't have to convince anyone. That's your Holy Spirit's work. Jesus, you taught us that when your Holy Spirit comes, he would convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. But you call us to be messengers, harbingers of your truth. And I pray, first, if there be anyone who has yet to receive the gift or they're not sure if they've accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, they can walk out of here sure. And if that's you, give up the fight. He has you surrounded. Come out with your hands up. And I'm just asking, if that's you right now, pray this prayer with me. A prayer of receiving Jesus' gift and declaring him your Lord. The prayer is this. God, 
in heaven, I am a sinner. And that sin makes me guilty before you. But you so love me, you sent your only begotten Son to pay for that guilt on the cross. Every evil deed, thought, intent, paid. Just like your scripture promised. And on the third day, just like the scripture promised, he rose again. Showing me there is a new life to be had. And it's that new life you offer me. And it's that new life I receive. Handing you my old guilty one in exchange now for one with Jesus as my Lord and my Savior. So I hand myself to you to follow you from this point forward. I am yours in Jesus' name. And if you agree with that prayer, I ask you to say, Amen. Lord, I pray for every person here who has said yes to you, that today you get us back to following you. We cannot follow you if we're staring at the world. So get our eyes off of the things, Lord, that do not satisfy. Get our cups out of the murky well. and Get us back to that place, God, where it's just us and you, where we follow you as we should. And Lord, lead us from glory to glory, we pray. We know there will be battles to be fought, but for those that come at us, Lord, help us to hold our ground. Give us the courage to hold our ground. And for those, Lord, that would invite us and give us the wisdom to be able to, to be clear about your gospel and to watch you transform lives now. I commit this precious country that you know so deeply is embedded into my heart. I lay this country before you and I pray, Lord, revive your saints reunite your army, pull them out of the caves and the thickets, pull them out of the Philistines and bring them back to that place, Lord, where we are that army that, that, is, that no enemy could stand against. And so, Lord, remove all of the divisions, remove all of those things, Lord, that keep us from keeping our eyes on you. And may we follow you into victory from victory to victory. And we commit this country and ourselves to you as part of it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Thank you for the privilege of being able to share with you today.